people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. So, hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. We are really happy to be here with Bernhard Fortuner, um, who is a expert in the field of um, the intersection of the far right and the environment, which has been a kind of topic I think people have projected a lot of things into, including us. I would fully admit that our previous episode on ecofascism, although it was trying to assemble. Um, a clear view of what the far right was interested in when it was thinking about nature. I think at the same time, it had lots of kind of um, flaws. So we're really happy to be here with someone who knows what they're talking about. Um, it's always good to interview someone who's like really clear on these matters. So the first question I wanted to ask was, how would you structure the far right? How would you break it apart when you're thinking about the environment? Is the, are there clearly defined camps into which you can fit the broader far right? I'm thinking all the way from, you know, the Rassemblement National in France that used to be known as the Front National National Front, all the way over to, you know, the National Socialist Order in America, kind of neo-Nazi groups, right? Like, so the huge swath of people we might think about here, are they divided up in clear ways when it comes to environmental politics, or is it too complicated to really kind of give clear parts to? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, let me just start by saying that I really enjoyed the ecofascism session so oh great i enjoyed it (laughs) i didn't say i didn't enjoy it (laughs) i'm just not sure it was entirely accurate but yes that was a really good one um so uh talking about the different camps and different actors Uh, so um kind of very traditionally i I would approach a far right as being on the one hand the radical right you mentioned uh national rally in france for example the austrian freedom party and so on and so forth so all these parties we, we know from the media are fairly successful and so on and so forth. Um, very much in the mainstream nowadays, um, anti-liberal, uh, democratic, but not really anti-democratic as in the case of, for example, uh, you know, this or that neo-Nazi group. Um, this or that neo-Nazi group falling within the extreme right camp at the other end of, of that spectrum. Now, um, yeah, as you say, a very wide kind of a spectrum, a continuum of actors. And I think it's pretty difficult to identify clear camps uh, or to to say that, okay, one side is is pro-environment, the other is against. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm really interested in this relationship between these two sides of the far right, if, if you like. Um, obviously, it's all about gray. It's not black and white, but but still, if we uh, differentiate the far right, then we can also think about you know whether or not this or that uh, side of the coin of the continuum uh, is more, if you like, environmentally or ecologically friendly. So I'm really interested in that in that relationship. Uh, but uh, you find uh, you find examples of extreme right parties which are really environmentally friendly, ecologically friendly. Uh, for example, Golden Dawn. Um, but also, so I'm very much working on on, on Germany. There are groups in, in within or which we which belong to the new right, the German new right, um, inspired by the French new right, and they are really kind of post-growth and so on and so forth. And then you also have actors on the extreme right who are full of conspiracy 
uh, talk and where it's Soros who uh, wants to do this or that through these climate policies. And at the same time, you have parties on within the radical right, which are fairly environmentally friendly, fairly kind of ecologically minded. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but also parties who have you know, nothing to do with, with climate protection, outright deny that there's something like climate change. I guess there are also very different ways of thinking about environmental protection, right? So on the one hand, when I think when people on the, the center or on the left think about climate protection, they mostly their minds now go to what is the overriding form of that, which is climate change, climate systems breakdown, however you want to describe that. But it seems like particularly, say, for example, Golden Dawn, which is a um, Greek, I would say, like a neo-fascist, even like kind of broadening on like kind of neo-Nazi-ish party, or whatever, but also now kind of uh, avowedly criminal organization um, that was now recently kind of banned. I'm sure people, our audience knows about that. Um, when they think about the environment, they're thinking not about climate change, doesn't seem to me, but they're thinking about the specific ecology of the Greek um, landscape. So there was all these kind of transformations in in scale that happen between parties. There are people on the far right or groups on the far right who are thinking about change, the kind of global problem, same way as people on the left, or is it always kind of fixated on a particular landscape of engagement? Yeah, I think that is what, what uh, binds them together. So when we talk about the um, environment, environmental protection, environmental concerns, um, ecological visions even. What holds the far right together is this uh, focus on, uh, on local particularity, um, if you like, an, an uh, identitarian approach to nature, to the environment. And uh, that is kind of, that is distinct. As you say, that is what differentiates them from what we usually associate with, with you know, environmentalism nowadays, which is uh, somehow related or concerned with, or also with global questions as very much a global outlook and so on and so forth. And that is, that is really uh, different from, from the far right. As I've just said, local particularity in the case of the far right, um, while they view contemporary environmentalism as being concerned with with the global, with the abstract, and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is all connected to then aesthetic questions, landscape, you mentioned landscape, I mean, I would say cultural landscape. This is all about the idea of the land and the people being, you know, or more specifically the nation and the homeland being uh, connected, deeply connected. And, and growing and evolving uh, together. And that doesn't mean that we need to talk about uh, blood and soil stuff. You know, that is maybe a very extreme uh, outcome of, of that connection, but uh, much more relevant today, at least, this, this cultural dimension of uh, the, the nation and, and its home. And I would even say uh, maybe something like an eco-communion so we have this idea of uh, the nation being a, a communion between you know, human members of the nation state. So this idea of, of Benedict Anderson, the imagined community, the special bond, solidarity, and so on and so forth between 
the members of the nation. Along these lines, you can uh, kind of, uh, at least in some cases, you know, obviously we're not talking about every actor within the far right, but if there is an, a far right concern for the environment, I think it grows out of this idea of an eco-communion where the bond is expanded from, you know, the human members to, um, to also plants and, um, and, and non-human non animals which you know, form a, a bigger whole, which uh, lives and, and uh, lives together and benefits from each other. Um, I think the, the other thing with the, particularly with the anthropological climate change aspect is that, that that kind of problem requires a solution which a lot of the far right have no truck with. So we'd need global action, it needs to be done, you know, in a, on a multilateral basis. And and this is this isn't something that, even for people, even for parties that accept kind of climate change as having a human origin, um, they, they they're not on board with the kind of solutions that are, that are needed in order for us to like solve that very real crisis. I think that's a really important aspect. I think. Yeah, I would definitely sign up to that. I mean, again, it depends. Some there are quite a lot of actors who are. Um, and that's one of the things I've learned over kind of the years. There are quite a lot of actors which are a bit more flexible when it comes to this, um, in the sense that uh, sovereignty is certainly key. So along the lines of what you've just said, uh, there is a problem with, with, uh, with an issue which is per definition uh, ignoring national boundaries, which per definition requires some kind of international uh, concerted effort. Um, so they will almost always uh, emphasize this aspect of sovereignty and that sovereignty must not uh, kind of be uh, limited through these or that uh, arrangements to tackle climate change. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't um, engage in some kind of, of global action. It just means that they would definitely uh, reject uh, supranational bodies taking over the role of the nation. So in some cases, it will just kind of lead into outright denial. But I, I would say by now, these, these are extreme cases. But uh, what it will definitely mean, this, this focus on sovereignty, as you mentioned it, what it will definitely mean that they won't accept, um, in most cases, at least supranational uh, agency involved in, in these processes. Um, I think that's well, sorry. Uh, when we um, when we think about the far right as a political category, we often associate issues that are not the environment with with it. So, for example, migration, the nation, uh, I suppose, a kind of populism railing against the corrupt elite. Um, why is it important for us to be thinking about how the far right um, talks about the environment and what the, how they're representing the environment? That's a very good question. Um, Maybe something we should have started, we should have had right at the start, but still. I mean, one answer, of course, would be that given that the environmental crises are, are not going to go away, I'm not saying that uh, these crises are entirely new. I mean, they've always, for a long time at least, been environmental crises. Um, but uh, arguably, climate change, for example, uh, biodiversity, these are 
crisis around agriculture and so on and so forth. I mean, these are crises which are now discussed, and at least they will be uh, present in the public sphere again, I'm, I'm pretty sure. It's not that uh, Corona has uh, pushed these crises aside for, for good. I'm, I'm sure climate change, for example, will uh, be again in the, will, will again be in the media uh, forcefully. So, and obviously these, these uh, changes, these crises are also real. They are not just mediated and, uh, and, and, and performed through media. So we have these crises, they are not going to go away. And in some sense, we need to be aware of, you know, how the far right might talk about them, might instrumentalize them, might make use of them. And when I say instrumentalize or use, I'm not just thinking about outright strategic and, and conscious uh, moves. I'm thinking about how these uh, crises, how dealing with, with these crises will, uh, will be done from their particular point of view and perspective. So not necessarily strategic at all. Um, in, that, in that sense, we need to be prepared, if you like, because these are important issues and we need to be prepared. Now, question of course is, this the, the only reason we, we should deal with, with this question because possibly they might not really talk a lot about it even though these crises gather steam simply because they think our voters or our potential voters are not going to be too much concerned about these issues or think primarily about these issues. They will keep thinking about, for example, uh, immigrants. So we will kind of keep sticking to to, to migrate the migration issue. Um, so my, uh, my answer therefore is we should nevertheless think about the environment and what they tell us about the environment because that makes us or helps us to understand their broad ideology. Getting kind of, just thinking about migration, for example. I mean, we, by now we know what they say about migration. We know that part of their ideology and, and why they say these things. But I would say by thinking about, for example, the environment, we can much better understand the ideology. We can understand it much more fully because we might talk about this um, later. We have actually already indicated it. I mean, these things, they fit well, they fit together. It's not that uh, they, they just do a little bit of environment because there's too much time on a, on a Wednesday afternoon or whatever. Um, it can really fit into their ideology. And that's why we need to know what is going on so, to, so that we see the entire picture, that we understand the entire package. Um, so that would be my, my answer, my first answer. You, yeah. So what do you, so it can often seem like I think like the far right is, is not really dealing with nature um, in this kind of way we talked about before in not really dealing with nature as like a global system. It's dealing with nature as a particular kind of collection of uh, environmental structures or of plants, non-human animals and so on um, in a particular locale and like the particular landscape of that. Like, of that. And so it's, it's quite a different view of nature, but also I think it's, it, 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 it's one that's like often quite abstracted even from that. So there's a sense in which like, at least the, kind of the, the clearest, almost extreme parts of ideology. Nature is taken to be something that gives you a lesson, right? So, um, and that, that, that lesson is something pretty abstract. So for example, um, 
nature is fundamentally scarce. The world is fundamentally scarce and therefore there is struggle. Or for example, if you think about, um, you know, uh, the late 19th century to kind of early 20th century, right? Like um, what is nature? Nature is fundamentally race, right? Um, and so you get these kind of big lessons that are taught by environmental changes perhaps or are taught by the environment to people. And then they base their politics on those lessons, right? So something's abstracted from nature and then it becomes the fundamental, fundamental idea of, of a politics. And therefore, I think there is, as you say, like an enormous degree of like um, continuity of coherence between these different ideas. I'm wondering what you think the far right might learn from climate change. Um, so first thing, I totally agree with this idea of, of learning lessons. And um, I would even kind of add to this that it's not just, you know, learning lessons from nature, but it's also that nature is, if you like, the ultimate backstop in a sense that nature is, is fixed. So nature really provides you with a, a pool of resources, a, a pool of lessons where, uh, you know, we can be, we can rest assured that these are proper lessons, um, you know, far beyond any zeitgeisty uh, construction, these or that uh, left-wing academic might come up with. Um, so that's, uh, that's the one thing. Now, what can we learn from climate change? The thing is that, um, I would emphasize that ideolog ideologies, on the one hand, of course, they uh, provide a certain set of ideas, a configuration of ideas, um, which, uh, you know, enable subjectivities in a certain way um, to read the world, to act in the world, and so on and so forth. So there's a level of, of coherence and things fitting together. But then at the, at the same time, they're also very, very flexible. Um, so depending on, on context uh, and so on and so forth, uh, it's not that one ideology will always lead causally, if you like, to um, this or that response in, um, in a given situation. So that implies that uh, also different things can be learned from climate change. Uh, we have already talked about conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. And for some, it might the lesson might be that, okay, George Soros has done it again. And um, we need to push in, 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 in this direction of, you know, dealing with the quote unquote Jews and, you know, all the old stories, all the established knowledge, quote unquote, of these actors is, is mobilized again. And, and, um, so that might be one thing. Um, much more interesting um, lesson could be uh, some kind of more or less extreme post-growth um, uh, post lesson. So for example, uh, the, the, the national rally uh, has, uh, has, has ideas which are not necessarily post-growth, but very much skeptical of uh, of global trade and so on and so forth because of the pollution that causes and uh, I mean that is a, a valid point um, we don't need to ship things from the UK if, if ships are allowed to travel to to from the UK to China and from China back to the UK to assemble uh, I don't know a radio or whatever um, 
another thing is maybe a bit more kind of uh, radical than, than this particular example is to uh, critique the the idea that capitalism can be green. And again, we find that within parts of the far right, um, which is in fact a, a critique of capitalism much more radical than many of the actors we find in the public sphere uh, these days. So what I'm saying is that there are different lessons and uh, it's an empirical question, which lesson, so to say, is, is more or less dominant, but um, I would be careful to say that there's there's one lesson. I think possibly one, I mean, one thing that perhaps the coronavirus crisis has, has, has taught us is um, the uh, astonishing unevenness of even people of, of response to crisis. People yeah. on, you know, who you might think of as on the quite, quite like radical right. I don't know if you would place Trump, for example, on the radical right. Um, I think it's a complicated question. Um, perhaps you would. Um, and if so, then, you know, his response was uh, essentially the conspiratorial one. Um, this doesn't exist um, to the coronavirus crisis. I wonder what you think is the relationship between the coronavirus crisis and climate change. What will, because it's, it, so going to contest this question. It seems to me, and it seemed for a while, that our image of climate change was always very bad. It was either a kind of a lone polar bear kind of drifting off into the um, the Arctic, or it was a, a gigantuan wave completely consuming New York in like one fell swoop. And it's like, yeah, neither of these things is true. And what we actually got in March was... Um, Massive supply chain stress, food shortages, um, billions of people suddenly like ejected from the public sphere, um, worldwide kind of like inconsistencies in governance and so on. And it seems to me that that forms the clearest image of what it might look like to live through a series of climate change disasters, depending on what their kind of particular content is. And there was a massive unevenness in the response. It was, it was almost like there was, there, was, there, was, there was no coherence to the far right at all. Um, but one of the lessons that might be learned there, I think, is like that there's a great deal to be um, had in autarky, right? Uh, the ideas of uh, a national polity that is entirely self-determining, that is able to kind of lock itself down, that is able to like control itself, um, re reject it to people who want to enter it and so on. These all seem like lessons that have been provided for kind of far-right or radical-right real politic sometime in the future. And I wonder if you think that this crisis resembles the climate crisis in some ways, in terms of the governance of it and so on. Yeah, I mean, thanks for, for making that point because when I said that there are different lessons, then what I've in mind that these different lessons still play out within a wider uh, frame. And um, I mean, you know, very similar to what I said at the beginning that um, there are a lot of different positions within the far right when it comes to the environment, because that spectrum is so wide, there's still this, this unifying idea that we are somehow uh, part of, of or, or closely connected interwoven with uh, a specific territory, so the nation and the homeland. And out of that, um, or that also implies that uh, the lessons which these actors uh, put forward or perceive that these lessons also, they will also always be tied to this idea of uh, this identitarian logic connection 
uh, connected to uh, the territory. That is, these lessons will always have some connections to borders, to boundaries, um, which you know we need to reproduce and we need to take serious and so on and so forth. So, so that kind of bottom line that will always uh, be there and will always inform the different readings of the crisis and the different responses to the to the crisis. So um, I totally agree that uh, this return to the return to borders, strengthening borders, that that will be there, um, and that will be there across crises. That's something uh, the the current crisis, the pandemic, uh, also illustrates because I would say all these actors. In, in one way or another through their uh, performance of, of crisis have tried to strengthen borders at the end of the day. They've also, um, for example, accused elites of, of acting um, incompetently um, and so on and so forth. And what is interesting when you look at uh, the Corona crisis and or performances of the Corona crisis by these parties, let's talk about Europe, and um, performances of uh, climate change, you actually find the same topics, um, the same arguments. So for example, uh, in favor of the sovereign uh, nation state, in, which means in favor of borders and so on and so forth, um, against incompetent elites, a very, very popular argument uh, to do with the economy in the case of uh, climate, it has all to do with uh, the fact or fact, quote unquote, that climate change responses, climate change policies are basically leading to deindustrialization and so on and so forth. And you mentioned Trump, we know this from Trump when he talks about China, but uh, the same happens in Europe um, where they point with the finger to, to China or to the US or to India whatsoever. Um, so, there are a series of, of topics or arguments which are activated across uh, crises. And uh, in that sense, these crises play out in, in very similar ways in, in the imagination of, of these actors. Um, yeah, maybe one more sentence about uh, the corona crisis. What is interesting is that not only are there differences between far-right actors, but there are also differences within these actors. I mean, very often these actors have, have changed their stance. Um, so at the beginning of the crisis, there wasn't actually that much uh, denial of COVID and, and the severity. Um, and they, they almost tried to push the government into, uh, or governments into, um, taking more, um, more serious steps, while by now that has changed and uh, these parties are usually uh, associated with anti-lockdowns, let's say anti-lockdown stances. I mean, we see that specifically with, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> go on. Sorry, you do, you do. <laughs> because that's been our, one of our areas of study has been patriarchal alternative in the UK, obviously as the newest kind of fascist party uh, that's trying to launch itself in the wake of the demise of the BNP uh, years ago now. Um, in that, when the when the first lockdown happened in March, um, there was a, they de-emphasized the coronavirus. They didn't talk about it a lot, which was 
that's strange because it was what everyone was talking about at the time. And as the kind of months have gone on and 2020 have gone on, they have kind of barreled deep into this kind of full-on pandemic, uh, um, very conspiratorial messaging, which they are like putting front and centre of their political work. So initially it was inside their Telegram groups they were talking about pandemic and there was arguments going on within there. And it was interesting to see those play out between the different kind of factions or whatever within the, within the, within the kind of milieu that surrounded that party. Um, but now it's like the, on their disputing pandemic uh, con uh, conspiracy leafleting in various areas around the country. It's very much a part of their. Um, it's a part of their kind of frontline messaging, and I think part of that's because they've seen the kind of how many people have been at these uh, anti-lockdown demonstrations and seen a, a like a kind of a kind of coherent constituency for, to which to appeal. But it also does play into like long-standing far-right kind of narratives of um, global conspiracy, you know, shadowy elites controlling the world, things like that, which is, I, I would say it would be familiar familiar, familiar ground for them to tread and, and basically. I should just say, uh, point of clarity, plandemic <laughs> is, if your memory of April 2020 is not so good, plandemic was a conspiratorial film put out uh, on YouTube originally and then moved over to BitChute, which is one of the big kind of places where the far right have lots of video content at the moment. Um, it basically alleges that the whole thing was, uh, as the name suggests, a plandemic. Uh, it's a great title. It's a not very good film, unfortunately. Um, so... I was thinking, there's, is it possible to kind of like maybe do a kind of comparison between the two between two crises, right? So, a lot of the far right um, current surge in Europe is, I think it's maybe mistaken in some ways, but like it's rooted um, or is it seen to be rooted in the 2015 migrant crisis, right? Um, lots of people enter Europe from Syria, from North Africa, and so on. Um, lots of refugees, lots of migrants, um, and they are, uh, you know, out of this. Um, is born something like a um, a new new far right search, basically, of, of people who want to um, close the borders and so on. I don't know if you agree with that that kind of historical suggestion, but what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is that, that that it seems like the climate crisis is not really one homogenous thing. It's a collection of discrete events that kind of build and build and build and build and build and build and build. And so it seems to me that it really depends on what the quality of the crisis is, because during the migrant crisis support for far-right parties went up. During the corona crisis, at least this is what the initial polling suggests, support for radical right parties and populism in particular has gone down quite substantially. And so I'm wondering what you think is kind of the, um, I, I guess it really depends what the crises are. Are there more pandemics? There are going to be more pandemics, that's a, that's a given. Are there more migration crises? There are going to be more migration crises. I wonder what you think might happen, or do you think that these these two things have the kind, the kind of effects that I've, I've suggested there? That's another really good question. Um, I don't know. I don't have a definitive answer, but I can. I would say two things. So first thing, um, crises are performed, so there's no reason they are constructed. Obviously, something happens, um, and we are talking about bad things happening. I'm not saying that you know it's just imagination or ideas or whatever, but things happen, and then they need to be put into a story which explains things, which gives meaning. And uh, I wouldn't say that, for example, a pandemic 
is necessarily uh, bad for, for the far right because there's something intrinsic to it which makes it you know, impossible for them to, 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 to flourish within, within that uh, crisis. Obviously, they haven't really succeeded this time. Um, I would agree that from what we know at the moment, at least, um, it doesn't really help them. Now, when it comes to uh, the 2015 crisis, I would say certainly correct that it has helped them and so on and so forth, but these things have been with us in Europe for, for much longer. And uh, I mean, the National Rally in France, again, in Austria, uh, the, the Freedom Party, uh, the Danish People's Party, and so on and so forth. Uh, they, they have been with us prior to 2015. So, uh, but, but certainly it has uh, certainly helped these, these parties. But what is maybe different with, with this crisis is of course that immigration is the issue um, of the far right. So yes, it's probably easier for them to perform, um, perform in that area. I think um, one difference between the two crises, if we're going to make a comparison, is that the migrant crisis was about um, governmental inaction and not doing something about the crisis, whereas the crisis, the coronavirus crisis, is about the far responsibility is about government action and these lockdowns and you know restrictive measures on our lives. It's it's protesting the you know intervention into our lives rather than not doing something. Um, but yeah, we need to, we're still really early on in this coronavirus research and thinking about this, like this is going to take up a lot of people's, you know, writing for a long time. So we have a long time to think about this, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't um, say too much about this crisis. First thing, it's not my kind of key area. And second, it's evolving and you know, this is something to look back in, in a bit of time and, and, and to assess. I mean, what, I, what I've just done, I've just submitted a, an article on the comparison of the performance of Corona and COVID between uh, March and September, um, once in 19, that's the climate crisis, and once in 2020, that's the, the COVID one. So... Kind of, I've started to look at it, but again, as you say, it's it's evolving. And uh... let's look at something that's definitely uh, definitely has happened in a long time in the past. If you think about uh, the far right, is there's often at least in, in Europe being um, uh, the parties who were uh, keen on the defense of empire um, and keen on various kinds of like uh, things like this, right? And the the American far right, you might think of as uh, emerging at least in part from. Uh, the defense of slavery. Um, so the American far right emerges from the South and so on, and the KKK and, and so on with like this. Right? So the um, colonies, colonialism was not only a political action, it was also a massively environmental, uh, it was environment making action. And lots of people talk about, say, Madison Grant, right? So Madison Grant um, was uh, on the far right, I think it's like reasonable to say, but not on the organized far right. Um, he was involved in um, both nature conservation in America and also in um, immigration restriction reform in uh, the, particularly the 1924 bill, um, which sets racial quotas for immigration into America. And people say, oh, these things are, these things are contradictory, but it, um, that is, you know, how could he do something so good? 
wildlife protection, while at the same time being so kind of bad about immigrants. But they seem to me to be actually very unified, very, very linked, very coherent set of ideas, in part because they're both the defense of or the assertion of kind of continuity over an ecological relationship that is ongoing between people, the land, the animals, and so on and so on. And that's one part of it. But it also seems to me, and this is my kind of the pet theory part, that what people are defending when they're defending certain ecological relationships in the colonies in particular is a relationship of domination that has already been established through, as Alfred J. Crosby writes in his uh, kind of um, ecological imperialism book, who writes the um, about the, uh, the, the way in which like, imperialism was not just a function of um, armies and so on, but also an ecological catastrophe. And that, for example, domination over um, the indigenous Americans was um, perform uh, was established through uh, ecological domination as much as by military domination. And I, I wonder what, where you think there are, the, are these kind of continuities. Are we still looking at something? Are we still looking at situations in uh, environmental response now that mimics the same kind of defense of an ecology of domination? No, I'm not sure if I have a, a, a good answer on this. Uh, I mean, what I would definitely agree with is this idea that um, that the ecosystem, the ecosystem meaning the national ecosystem, the particular territory um, a group is, is invested in, that this ecosystem needs to be uh, protected in their point of view, which means needs to uh, be kept stable in balance and so on and so forth. You, you said continuity. Um, so there's, a, there's an idea of, of purity involved here, um, which includes uh, the, uh, the, the natural environment of, of that particular group. Um, and now what's interesting is that this idea of purity of what is pure, uh, this idea of balance, i.e. what constitutes the natural state, is usually one which is uh, yeah, going maybe a few, few hundred, maybe thousand years back, but that's basically nothing in terms of of, of ecosystem development and, and uh, the involvement of, of species and so on and so forth. Um, why do I say this? I say this because thing, I mean, my starting point is always that, that there are these borders, yes, they are constructed, um, but prior to, prior to these borders, uh, animals, non-human animals, have moved species, plants have always moved. So this idea of, of, of purity, this idea of um, invasive species in short, is actually a, a, a problematic idea. And uh, I would say a problematic idea of, irrespective of the political position or the political camp, which puts it forward. Because, you know, we have many kind of, uh, honest and sincere, uh, more or less left-wing green politicians or activists, more broadly speaking, who will talk about invasive species and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying that uh, being concerned about invasive species is always a problem, certainly not. Um, 
But I think we have to be very careful when we talk about uh, invasive species and, and the metaphor that involves and the, the background, the basic assumption this involves. So also when it comes to, to ecological imperialism and so on and so forth. Um, a good example of this invasive species thing is the red squirrel discourse. There was a, uh, uh, there was a kind of high Tory conservative YouTube meme guy who we, me and my friends were briefly fascinated with, um, who kind of very kind of overtly was in the red squirrel invasive species thing. And he, he ended up not becoming anything like objectionable. He ended up stopped making videos and I don't know what he does now, but uh, yeah, that's the, that's the classic one. Um, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. That's the, the super classic one. Um, the BNP. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if they've done it recently, but uh, in the past they, they have done it. Nick Griffin is also a big fan. I know from his Twitter account, a big fan of the Red Squirrel. Um, and I mean, in, in, in other countries, you have other um, non-human animals, which kind of signify purity, that which belongs to us and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, with the red squirrel, it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, North America, if I, if I remember correctly, um, the gray squirrel with uh, other animals, um, non-human animals in, in Europe, in Germany, for example, it's, it's the Asian hornet and whatever. So things which come from the outside and which penetrate our safe space, uh, our pure space and uh, yeah, invasion. I'm wondering how these things get kind of played out because like indigeneity is a really, really strong kind of uh, thought uh, on the far right. Like it's all over the place, even to the extent uh, I think quite cynical maneuvers, but probably quite canny uh, by a patriotic alternative recently. And this is a tactic they borrowed from the BNP in part um, to try and hijack world indigenous people's day by having these um, White Lives Matter banners. Um, obviously, the action went terribly. You can read all about it online. Um, but the um, there was definitely this, uh, they're trying to kind of use this like notion of indigeneity. And that must play out very, very, very differently in America, where very obviously, you white Europeans are not the indigenous peoples. And I'm wondering, like, how, how does the, how do you see these kind of transformations taking place um, in the American far right? Or are they, is the, is the same thing Nelly is present? Um, I, can't, I can't say, I can't talk about the American far right, uh, simply because I've always just focused on, on the European one. And even in Europe, I'm, um, I'm kind of focusing on a few uh, particular contexts. But I mean, this whole, whole idea of, of ethno-pluralism and uh, you know, not just ethnic pluralism, but also in terms of race, quote unquote, uh, races which uh, have to have to survive. Um, I know that, that is, of course, big, and uh, this um, this idea of you know, we we know what happened to the Native Americans, so let's be let's be careful and let's not let too many of these. Uh, brown and black people in. I mean, this is something which pops up, I would say, every second time I listen to to someone from the German extreme right, for example. Um, so they are very much kind of aware of, in, in their way, 
in their particular ways of, of what happened in, in the US. And um, Martin Zellner, for example, also talks a lot about uh, the differences between the US and the European situation, um, exact, exactly along these lines. Uh, in, in Europe, there is proper, uh, there, there are proper kind of rooted populations. And that is, that is different in, uh, in the US. So I'm not quite sure if I responded to the question. No, that's great. That's, 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 that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Um, <laughs> just for Klaus E. Martin Selner uh, was the kind of de facto leader of Generation Identity. He's now doing something called uh, the Osterhecker, um, which I think means the Austrians. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th th uh, that seems like a, in some ways like a move from kind of pan-Europeanist and identitarianism into a national context. So I think it's a really interesting move in the post-2018, post-generation entity doing kind of big stunts. Like, you know, it seems like a strange move, but I think we're, we're kind of moving beyond our, our topic there. Um, I have one final question. This has been really fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, what's, your question? what's your final question? Because I might have a final question. Okay, you go for a final question first and then I'll answer my, ask my answers. Can I just add one point before we move on? Uh, just yeah, because it's such a... Um... An interesting uh, detail. So the, I'm not going to say anything about the Austrians and, and the strategy behind kind of coming up with, with this alternative movement. Um, and of course, that happens all, not only because, but very much after Christchurch and, uh, and uh, what that meant for, for Selma, but also the identitarian movement. Um, but that, that's not what I wanted to say. I want to say that um, Selma, not very often, but sometimes he says a little bit about the environment. Um, he has, for example, one clip, which is all about this idea of uh, the national, the local environment, in particular, the aesthetic experience um, you have when you, you know, you go hiking. Obviously, that's a thing in, in Austria. So. Um, uh, kind of that is a paradigmatic text video in this particular uh, case, kind of illustrating how far right um, engagement relations to the environment might look like. But then also he has a video on climate change, where he is um, actually saying that yes, it exists, anthropogenic climate change, and um, really makes this kind of classic move, but. That's what I mean with, we have to be aware what they are, what they are saying. So to understand their wider kind of ideological makeup and, and, and how all these different aspects fit together. Where in this video about climate change, he is, is basically criticizing uh, liberal, uh, unlimited, unrestricted industrial uh, societies um, where there's ever more change and so on and so forth, which is totally consistent with, you know, everything else he says and with, with the German and the French new right and so on and so forth. So there's no puzzle there, but it's, it's interesting to see that, yeah, all these things fit very well together. And it's not just uh, climate change deniers along the lines of, I don't know, back then the BNP or Nowadays in Germany, the alternative for, for Germany, there are these very different positions. But yeah, that's it. Sorry, enough about Selma. You've, um, you've written about uh, 
we, we, in this in, the, in this discussion, we haven't really talked about eco-fascism as a term or as a thing. Um, and I mean, that was quite deliberate because it is important to acknowledge this kind of spectrum and differences in the far right. Um, but you, you've written about um, like eco-fascism proper or proper eco-fascism. And I wondered how, how would you go about, it, it seems a bit like, it, today it seems like everyone's like identifying eco-fascism everywhere. In, in many ways, there is there is signs like the Christchurch Youth Manifesto is obviously the most obvious example. How, when we are thinking about these things about the far right and the environment, how do we? Is it useful to identify eco-fascism as a distinct category in this? And if so, how do we do it? Yeah, super. Um, so I'm usually not uh, using the term because I don't think that it's. It's super helpful. I mean, it can be helpful because there are eco-fascist actors, but uh, they are on the fringe of the fringe. So there's the, the extreme right uh, fringe. And then within that fringe, there's a, an eco-fascist fringe. Um, so these groups, they make good headlines, but, and I mean, at times uh, there are really serious consequences like with, with Christchurch, for example, where um, where this, these ideas kind of were part of the wider story. I wouldn't say that they caused him to do what, what he did, but they were uh, part of that story. Um, so yes, it's okay to use it for a very specific kind of spectrum within the far right. But uh, we totally agree, let's not use it beyond that um, very particular uh, spectrum. So by and large, I don't think that ecofascism helps us to understand what, for example, um, the national rally in France does, or I mean, again, uh, the Austrian Freedom Party or the, the Danish People's Party. Uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be the category through which we look at what these parties do. Uh, there's a, there, sh there should be, there needs to be a much broader uh, conceptual framework, if you like, to understand what these parties do. One of those um, that was suggested, sorry. Sorry, no, go on. Well, one of those which was being suggested was like far-right ecologism. Do you know that's a yeah. more, more like useful term? Yeah, for example, or I mean, simply, uh, talking about uh, far-right environmental communication, uh, I mean, having a, a substantial, substantive understanding of communication as, you know, bringing into being identities and subjectivities and so on and so forth, not just talk. But uh, yeah, far-right ecologism, that, that could be a way forward. Um, but yeah, going beyond, uh, going beyond uh, eco-fascism and uh, all the associations we have with it, uh, thinking about you know Nazism and and so on and so forth, blood and soil. It's so much more complicated. Um, I would say so much more interesting. And I mean, all the complexities we are talking about. If it will only be about ecofascism, then many of these complex, not all, but you know, many of these complexities might actually not exist. But obviously, they do exist. So, yeah, definitely. Let's go beyond this this concept. 
Well, uh, actually, my question was um, the same as Alex's. <laughs> so um, it turns out we don't have a final question. My question was simply, where do you think the conversation about these things needs to go next? Um, so maybe two or maybe even three points, which you know I'm interested in. So the first one is um, climate change and to better understand what is what is happening there. Because I mean, we started by saying that it's all very complex. And, uh, you know, let's let's have a look and let's see if there is some kind of pattern. Um, I mean, an old, an old idea is that the more to the right, the more organicist these actors are. Uh, you know, in an extreme case, this could mean blood and soil, taking that serious. I mean, not saying that, for example, the Nazis uh, took it serious in their in their realpolitik. But let's say there is a proper blood and soil ecofascist actor. If that's the case, then does it mean that they will also take climate change uh, serious? Because obviously, climate change is going to be a a big problem for for their territory and for what happens nature-wise in that territory. So yeah, to keep thinking about whether or not and under what circumstances, the more to the right, the more ecological friendly, and also the more um, climate change friendly these actors are. You know, to what extent is that is that correct? Um, the BMP was very much to the extreme right, but they didn't believe in climate change. Um, we spoke about Golden Dawn, where things are very different. Um, and so on and so forth. So, and, and there are neo-Nazis who uh, talk about the historical lie, which is about Auschwitz and so on and so forth, the Holocaust. And in the next sentence, they talk about uh, the climate lie as being the lie, the big lie of our time. So again, very, very much to the to the, the right, but really not into into climate change. Nevertheless, some of these actors are into environmental protection more generally. The local we spoke about that. So why is it? Why why is that? Why, so how is this relationship between? The local and particular environment and the, the, the apparently global and abstract climate. How is that looking like? Um, so that relation is, is important. That's the second point. Um, and then also how old and if you like uh, kind of traditional concerns, and I think you alluded to them uh, early on, how they uh, kind of come back or not um, these days, I mean, overpopulation uh, is, is kind of one of the, the classic arguments. And I'm not saying that it's not with us any longer, but when I read these magazines, I don't see it everywhere. It's still there, it's still mobilized, but, um, and they will, they will still revert to it but at least from the data I know in, in, in continental Europe, it's kind of, it's not the master argument, which is at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. And yeah, why is that? I mean, 
uh, will it come back and so on and so forth. Um, when you talk about climate change, they could very much talk about overpopulation. It would fit, what I mean is it would fit into their story. And if we look at uh, Christchurch, for example, uh, overpopulation was there. If we look at uh, the BNP, overpopulation was there. But uh, when I look at, at kind of contemporary far right in, at, at the continent, yes, it's, it's there, but it's not, not beginning, middle, end. Um, so that is something I, I find very interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much. This has been really, really uh, helpful and enlightening. Um, people who want to know more about this should go and check out your book, The Fire and the Environment, which is from Routledge, um, Politics, Discourse, Communication. It's a really, really good book, really good, great collection of essays, uh, a whole bunch of different people uh, in there. Um, lots of your, your work is also available on the Center for the Study of the Radical Right um, online. Uh, including that article about the rare case of the I think the Green Line Front, which is kind of the eco-fascist group proper, very much on the fringe. Uh, lots of the groups you can name out there, but like, yeah, it's um, groups of only like five, six members maximum. Um, I have another question about the base, which I just want to realize I, I want to ask you, but that's time. We, we'll, we'll do another time. <laughs> Thank you um, very much for um, coming. And yeah, it's been really great. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Okay. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it was great to touch on, on so many different uh, issues. And there's uh, certainly a lot and we could have talked for another hour, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, have a... Uh, yeah, have a good uh, Christmas. I hope you, I hope you uh, don't get COVID. <laughs> How can we imagine a world beyond prisons and police, borders and surveillance? Rustbelt Abolition Radio is an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Each monthly episode amplifies the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explores ongoing work in the movement to abolish the carceral state and racial capitalism. Tune in to Rustbelt Abolition Radio here on the Channel Zero Network and visit www.rustbeltradio.org to learn more. 12 rules. <laughs>